Welcome to this week's episode of our Thirsty Podcast. I am Pastor Michael Zarling here at Water of Life in Racine, Wisconsin. And I'm Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer. He's also in Racine, Wisconsin at Water of Life. Sometimes. Yes. And this week we're going to be looking at the Old Testament lesson and the gospel for the third Sunday in Advent and looking at how Jesus brings joy. And that traditionally is the emphasis of the third Sunday of Advent, which is why it's called Gaudat Gaudete Sunday. Um, and then many Advent wreaths have that pink candle for this Sunday representing joy and rejoicing. Right. And so if you're like our ushers who aren't ever sure which candles to light, the blue or the pink, uh, another way to do it is just have four blue ones and then you don't have to worry about which Sunday to light the pink candle. And then could you explain to me, we have red candles for Christmas. I have never encountered this before. Yeah, red is for uh, Christmas. I don't know why, but I just know that that's the color for the Christmas. Maybe we were just cheap in Watoma. Well, you just keep using white ones? No, we had the white Christ candle, and then we had the blue and pink from the Advent wreath. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just something we've always had here. But hmm. talking about lighting the candles... You know, I've warned Nathan about this before. So several years ago in our Sunday school Christmas Eve service, I was uh, lighting my candle from the Christmas wreath. So it had the red candles. And then I would light my candle to then give to the ushers who would then pass the candlelight on to the first person in each pew. And then they would pass the candlelight down to everyone else in the pew we turn off the lights and sing Silent Night. Uh, no one noticed this except me, because when I reached across the kids' heads to light my candle, I got too close to the third candle, and I burned a hole in my, in my white alb. But because I'm cheap, I then took white out, and I just covered up the black scorch mark, and no one saw the hole. For several years, that was my gown. Until one of the ladies on the altar guild finally noticed it and then scolded me. <laughs> and so then the altar guild ladies bought me a new white alb and they patched up the old alb. And that, that old alb with that hole that now has a patch on it with a golden cross, that's the one that's up at the Caledonia campus. That is also where my lesser liked alb resides as well. By lesser light, you mean gray? No, I mean that I bought it when I was in seminary the first go-round, and I didn't have much money and bought the cheapest alb that Gaspard's had, and whatever material it's made of, it wrinkles when you look at it incorrectly. Oh. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's get into the gospel lesson. So last Sunday uh, we was the second Sunday in Advent, and John the Baptist always shows up on the second Sunday in Advent, and then he shows up again in the third Sunday. So the first Sunday, well, that second Sunday in Advent, the first time John shows up, he's preaching a message of repentance. And then that third Sunday in Advent, he's still on the scene, but now he's pointing to Christ. So if you want to read that gospel lesson. Uh, the gospel of John chapter 1, uh, verses 6 through 8, and then it jumps to verses 19 and 28. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as an eyewitness to testify about the light so that everyone would believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. 
This is the testimony John gave when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny. He confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, Who are you then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? No, he answered. Then they asked him, Who are you? Tell us so we can give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. They had been sent from the Pharisees, so they asked John, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? I baptize with water, John answered. Among you stands one you do not know. He is the one coming after me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to untie. These things happened in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. So we talked about this last time in that Luke gives us Jesus' birth from Mary's point of view. Matthew gives us Jesus' birth from uh, from Joseph's point of view. Mark begins right away with Jesus' baptism. And then John begins his gospel with Christ's birth from heaven's point of view. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then by the sixth verse... John also skips over Jesus' birth in the manger and so forth and then begins with John the Baptist's ministry. And he says that, verse 7, he came, John came as an eyewitness to testify about the light. Uh, why, Nathan? Why did John testify to this light of Jesus? Well, that was John's Mission. We see that in Isaiah, which John later references, that John understood his calling, that he was the one who was sent to prepare the way for the Lord. And so John, in his ministry, testified about the light, about Jesus, who incidentally was also his cousin. Um, John's ministry focused everyone on Jesus, that this one was coming. Uh, But it does seem like John was an incredibly powerful and effective preacher, that these crowds were going out and listening to him, and so much so that it quickly got the attention of the leaders in Jerusalem to find out what was going on out there in the desert. Yeah, we can skip to that last verse since you kind of mentioned the location. So these things happened in Bethany beyond the Jordan. This is not the Bethany that's right next to Jerusalem, because that's kind of like a suburb to the city. Uh, that's where Jesus would have stayed with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Yeah, this is out in the wilderness, and it's in the southern part of the Jordan River Valley. So think, you know, not quite down to the Dead Sea, but I think I read in in the vicinity near Jericho. Yeah. But anyways, this is, this is desert. This is wilderness that John is preaching in. Yeah, I did not check... And maybe you did how far this is from Jerusalem, but this is a this is a long walk. Now the people there are used to walking, but this is walking in the desert, uh, and this is walking uh, a long way, and you have to be prepared. Uh, it may have may have taken you know a day to get out there. Then you've got to stay, and then because you're going to listen, and then you've got to get back home. And so maybe it's they're taking their camping equipment and so forth with them. And if I remember my biblical geography as well, this is not like there wasn't anything else over in this region that people normally would have been traveling in this direction. They were going specifically to hear this ministry of John the Baptist. And then 
thinking about this too is he says uh, he came to testify about the light. So there I was wondering, Nathan, what's the darkest place you've ever been in? Uh, the darkest place I have ever been in is there were a couple times when I was younger and I was a camper. Uh, one of the specialties that the camp had was spelunking. And so we went down in a cave. And then when you do one of the things you do when you're in a cave is you turn off the lights. And there was no light whatsoever in that cave. It was completely dark. Yeah. Yeah. I- I was like that down in Kentucky at Mammoth Cave. Okay. But another place that I was thinking of uh, years ago, uh, Shelly and I would take the girls on a biking trip. That's kind of what got me into biking so much to Elroy, Sparta, a trail in more central Wisconsin. And they have three uh, tunnels there. One's really short, one's medium, and then one's long enough that it's dark. You get ways in there, and you can't see the light. Now, it's just a tunnel length and wide, so like a train would go through there because this is a rail-to-trail. But imagine now it's just as wide as it is long, so you cannot see one end or the other because uh, that's the imagery I have here of why would you need to testify to the light that if people would see the light and they're in the darkness, well, they'd want to get out. And so they see the light. But in my mind, what I'm picturing here is being in that tunnel or being in that cave and people are wandering around in the darkness and they can't find the light. And it's maybe it's just a pinprick and you see it. And so you testify, you witness to the light and you tell people there's a light. Let's go to the light. And the imagery then is in our culture, there's a lot of darkness in our world. Uh, you, know, you see the darkness of now even, we talked about this in Bible study this morning, that there are satanic clubs in grade schools now. You know, there is a satanic uh, figure supposedly for Christmas in one of the legislatures in, in Iowa. There is a satanic decorated Christmas tree at the National Railroad Museum in Green Bay in their Hall of Trees. Yeah, so people are lost. And people have been talking to me, too, about, uh, and I've, I've touched on this a few times in recent sermons, about the paganism of the climate cult. And, and that's just a, a new thing. Uh, that I've been touching on, but it's a really an old pagan religion. It's the same pagan religion of Baal and Asherah, which was both sexual gods and then also gods of nature. And and that's the same thing when, with the Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians all worshiping nature. They would just give nature and things in nature different names of gods and goddesses. And I, it, I feel like it's almost our default mm-hmm. setting. Um, that in our culture, now that we've moved past Christianity, I think there was a belief um, by a lot of secularists that, you know, as society progressed, we would find that we no longer had a need for religion whatsoever. But we really do seem to be hardwired to want religion. And so if you remove God, I think we're reverting back to those old forms of paganism that we look to the things that are bigger and stronger than us. 
the earth being one. And then, of course, we personify it as a force that we can somehow appease or interact with. Yeah. And all you have to do is listen to people talk about Mother Earth. And they'll say things like, the world is mad at us. You know, and that's why the weather is acting up. And they are, like you said, they're personifying something. Well, they're personifying the created because they refuse to worship the creator. And so when people are so lost in this, whether it's paganism and Satanism and so forth. And uh, the question that came up in Bible study this morning when I talked about the Satanic Club, I said, are they really teaching these kids to worship the devil? I said, well, what the Satanic Club has in their promotional materials is that the devil is just a literary figure to them. And they're teaching people to be free and focus on themselves. And that's that's an important distinction to make is there are definitely two branches of what get labeled Satanism. The one branch worships Satan openly, believes that Satan is the God they follow. The other branch is much more, it's a worship of self. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's a turning, I mean, it's going back to the trick Satan used on Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You can be like God. That's the focus there. It's not, they don't actually believe in Satan. They believe in themselves and they believe in making themselves God. And really, I think one of their guiding principles is if you desire something, you go take it. Yeah. There is no morality. What you want is what is good. Right. And so that worship of self, the worship of nature, that's all. And then that will eventually, or it can eventually lead to worship of Satan. It doesn't have to. But uh, I think the devil is a little more bold these days. He's not even hiding. Because this religion, like we've just said, it's ancient. It's as old as Satan in the garden. And yet, uh, in past decades, it would be called in America New Age. (laughs) But... It's it's the same old trick of the devil. Uh, it's just he's being a little more blatant now. And we use this as just one more example. It can be there. Uh, it's just another idol that people have created for themselves. And so this idolatry can also be in all of the uh, sexual talk and the uh, transgenderism, the homosexuality, the gay marriage, all of those things. That is, again, a a worship of self. Yeah. Again, it boils down to whatever makes you happy becomes your God. Yep. And when people are so lost in this, they are in the darkness. That's the whole point of this is they are lost in that darkness. And the light of Christ appears only as a pinprick to them, but they can't even see that pinprick. And so John is called, and then you and I are also called then to testify about the light. And as John is in the desert testifying to the light, then the Jews in Jerusalem, they send out spies, the way I refer to them, uh, priests, Levites, later on Pharisees to ask John, who are you? What is his response? Well, first of all, sorry, I was having a little bit of issue with my microphone. Uh, John immediately says that he is not the Christ. 
uh, because he knows that's at the heart of what they're asking. They want to know, are you the one? Are you the one that was promised in the Old Testament, the one we have been waiting for? And John immediately, I like how he says, he confessed and did not deny. He confessed, I am not the Christ. Yeah, three times. Three times. That emphatic, I am not the Christ. I'm the one preparing the way for the Christ, but I am not the Christ. Yeah, and notice how he says it. It's in the negative. I am not the Christ. Are you Elijah? And and as I was looking at this, at first glance I thought, oh, they're wondering, is he Elijah come back from the dead, except Elijah didn't die. You know, wondering, well, he was taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. Did he come back down as a fiery preacher? And if I remember, I think there was a belief that that was a possibility in the Judean culture that Elijah was going to return. Yeah. I was wondering about this. I don't have an answer, so I'm just going to ask you, what is, uh, what do they mean when they ask, are you the prophet, capital P? So that goes back to Deuteronomy, and now I'm blanking on which chapter. I do this a lot, don't I? It's in Deuteronomy where Moses, Deuteronomy is basically Moses' last will and testament that he's giving on the plains um, before he goes up on Mount Nebo and the Lord buries him after telling him, you're not going to be empty and entering the promised land. Um, And so Moses gives Deuteronomy basically as his final sermon. And in it, he says, that's just a little bit longer than your sermons. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But Moses says, the Lord will send another prophet like me. Um, and I can try to find it real quick, but that's what that's referring okay. to. The prophet that Moses had said was going to come. And I think there was a belief that they were looking for a second Moses, a second lawgiver who would also renew the covenant that had been made. And that's that's good. I appreciate that. Uh, that they're looking at, well, Elijah, they know he did not die, and they're not really sure then if Moses died, you know, because uh, though it says in Scripture that I think it's in Jude where uh, they couldn't find his body and so forth. So they're looking at Moses, they're looking at Elijah. Well, then they ask, and again, he answers, no, it's in the negative. I'm not one of those guys. Well, then who are you so we can go back and report to those who sent us? And then he quotes Isaiah, that he knows who he is. Did you find it? I did, and I should have gone with my gut, and I thought it was Deuteronomy 17, and it was Deuteronomy 18. Well, uh, then you shouldn't have gone with your gut because yeah, your gut was wrong. Yeah, Just it, close. It was close. There weren't chapters in the original Hebrew. So, <laughs> uh, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brother Israelites. Listen to him. This is exactly what you asked from the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly. You said, do not let me hear the voice of the Lord my God anymore, and do not let me see this great fire again. I will die. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Moses goes, I'm skipping a couple verses. He said, how can we know that the Lord has not spoken that word? If a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord and that thing does not come about and does not come true, the Lord has not spoken that word. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. And so basically Moses is saying God is going to raise up a prophet 
uh, that he will have the words of God in his mouth and he will speak to them everything I commanded to him. Anyone who will not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I will self will call him into account. And so that's the prophet that they were looking for. Yeah. And then they're wondering, uh, you know, who are you? And John quotes another prophet, Isaiah, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Uh, that's, that was the Old Testament lesson from last Sunday. So he knows who he is, and I find it interesting that, just thinking about this, that you've got the priests and the Levites and the Pharisees being sent out from their brothers from Jerusalem. And then who is... John's dad, it was Zechariah, who was a priest, and but he, he and Elizabeth would have known who John was, and they would have told John who he was, and yet I wonder how long they were around, because they were already old when he was born, and so, you know, how did, you know, did they stick around for the 20 years for his ministry? Until about well, thirty years, if he's a, a rabbi out in the desert like Jesus was, because uh, he's going to be thirty years old because John fo- Jesus follows him, and he's only a few months younger than John. Uh, so, how did John know who he was? You know, did his parents tell him if they passed away? Do they have like what we might call godparents or sponsors, and they told him to tell John? Just kind of interesting that way. Or did we have, since John really is kind of the last of the Old Testament prophets, did he receive a call from the Lord like many of the other Old Testament prophets did that simply isn't recorded for us? Uh, Something else that's interesting to note kind of about the questions they ask, we who have the benefit of looking at Scripture now that it has been fulfilled know that Jesus as the Christ was both the prophet that was promised, and the Christ. But it seems like in the Jewish mindset at this time, those were two different people. The Christ they envisioned was going to be the descendant of David, a political leader who was going to renew you know, the political fortunes of the Jewish state. The prophet was going to be a second lawgiver, that they saw those as two different people And we're not expecting what God had planned all along, that both the prophet and the Christ were going to be the same person. And for our midweek Advent services, we're doing a series entitled Prophet, Priest, and King. And there you've got, like you mentioned, the prophet and king aspects, and yet they would have forgotten about the priest aspect. That's the part I'm preaching on and uh, bringing in... Uh, that you are a priest forever in the manner of Melchizedek uh, from uh, Psalm 110, verse 7. And so there, what's, what's interesting in that, in the manner of Melchizedek, Melchizedek shows up with Abraham after Abram's nephew Lot had been taken as a prisoner of war by the four kings when they attacked Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abram and his 318 fighting men chase down the four kings' army and then routes them with an attack at night. And then Melchizedek shows up, and he is, like I said, a king of Salem, Jerusalem, and then also a priest of the Most High. But in Jewish culture, 
the kings and priests were separate. Kings came from David's line from the tribe of Judah. Priests came from the line of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. And so they're separate, and yet he is a priest and a king together. That's all of Psalm 110. I only preached on that fourth verse because the, the other six verses all talk about his kingly reign. And then, yes, and then you combine that with the prophet. And it, like you said, the only way we can see him as prophet, priest, and king, and but the only time we really focus on that is in catechism, is hindsight through scripture. So you can understand why the people could not figure it out. How can one figure, one Messiah, be all three? Just as a complete tangent, you know, we talk about Abraham being rich, but then you take into mind how many people just had their own private army that they could go to war and go toe-to-toe with kings. Well, Abraham could. Yeah. Well, you could since you named two of your sons after soldiers, right? Well, generals, yes. Yeah, yeah. And then lastly, they ask, well, if, uh, if you're not the prophet or the Christ or Elijah, why do you baptize? So the, I think this baptism would have been very new. They would have been doing ritual cleansing and so forth, but this baptism for repentance and forgiveness, that was new. It does seem that way that, I mean, yeah, there was tons of ritual washing. They did have the idea of being sprinkled with water for forgiveness for the cleansing of sins. I forgot which exactly that sacrifice, and that has to do with wasn't there that special heifer that they had to burn and make the ashes from and then mm. sprinkle people with that water? So there was that idea of sprinkling with water for cleansing and forgiveness in the Old Testament rituals, just not the way we think of baptism and not the way John was baptizing. But it is interesting, they don't seem to be questioning the baptism right. so much. There's some more baptizing questioning why John is doing it the way he's doing it. Yeah. And then one last thing on the baptism. Uh, I'd encourage you to find this on, uh, on Facebook, which is going to be either on my personal page or there's different Wells groups that I shared it with. An article I had written for uh, Kingdom Workers uh, last month that we had four baptisms of adults at our Jesus Care service. And I wrote specifically about Dana whom I baptized, uh, another pastor had baptized the other three adults from his church. And But what I had told Dana was that when I baptize her, I will get her head wet and my cheeks would be wet. So that's the title of the article, Wet Head and Wet Cheeks. And a number of people wrote back to me and said, well, they had wet cheeks too after reading it. But I talk about the—I the, didn't talk about this in the article— but what was interesting with baptizing Dana, uh, who is 30 years old and autistic, is that uh, water kind of bothered her to have a lot poured on her head. So I baptized her with just dipping my finger in the water and making the sign of the cross on her head. But that's all it takes. A little bit of water with the importance of God's word. And you know, there was repentance and forgiveness and another child of God. Anything else on this text? No, other than we just see all throughout the ministry of John, his humility. It was clear that he was an incredibly popular and charismatic preacher, 
but he never pointed to himself. He always pointed to Christ. It seems like he really understood his role as the forerunner pointing to the Savior, that his ministry was important, but only in the sense that it prepared for the one who was far greater than he. Yeah, just talking about humility reminded me of this, that one of our members texted me after reading that article, Wet Head, wet head and Wet Cheeks. He, he said, oh, Pastor, you've got a gift. And I said, yeah, there are three things I'm good at, biking far, talking fast, and writing goodly. <laughs> and he's, he texted back and said, well, you're good at other things. And I said, well, except my wife would say humility is not one of them. So John was humble. I thought you were going to do like a Proverbs thing. There are three good things I am good at, four that I excel at. <laughs> that would have been good. Yeah. Well, I, I should have, or I could have quoted Moses. There is no one more humble in all the world than Moses. Yeah. All right. Let's get into the Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 61. I'll be, uh, I'll be preaching on these verses. And what's interesting in studying this is. The first three verses in the text, those are spoken by the Messiah, by the Son of God, 700 years before that Son of God takes on the flesh of the Son of Man in uh, the Virgin. And then the last two verses, verses 10 and 11, the speaker changes. That's going to be the speaker who is now received the work of the ministry of the Messiah. Verses 1 through 3. The Messiah says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release for those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a cloak of praise instead of a faint spirit, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord to display his beauty. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will celebrate because of my God, for he has clothed me in garments of salvation with a robe of righteousness he covered me. Like a bridegroom who wears a beautiful headdress, like a priest and like a bride who adorns herself with her jewelry, For as the earth produces its growth, and as a garden causes what has been sown to sprout up, so God the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up in the presence of all the nations. So there's a lot packed into this because there's a lot of word pictures here. But as I said, the Messiah is speaking and he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Right there you have the Trinity. You have the Son speaking and saying that the Holy Spirit is upon him, sent by the Lord God the Father. And then he was anointed by the Lord at his baptism, when the Holy Spirit came on him in in power. And then we can look at each of these lines. Again, it's just packed. What does it mean, Nathan, that the Messiah was anointed to preach good news to the afflicted? Well, that's what Christ did. In the literal sense, we see in his ministry that he went out and he preached to the crowds, he healed the sick, he gave sight to the blind, he comforted those who were mourning. That that was 
most of his ministry was ministering to the afflicted. Then you step back a little bit more, and his entire ministry was saving those afflicted by sin from the consequences of sin by his death on the cross. That Christ is the word of God. Christ is the good news that is preached to the world that is afflicted by sin. Yeah, and the way I'm talking about this in the sermon is that Isaiah is writing to Jews who are going to be returning from their captivity, their exile in Babylon, and so they're going to be mourning because a lot of their family has died. They'll be mourning because they returned to Jerusalem and it's been destroyed. They'll be returning to the temple, which has been demolished. You know, These are the people of God coming back to the city of God, to the house of God. But then applying that specifically, uh, the way I wrote the sermon was to people who are mourning and specifically mourning the loss of a spouse. Uh, and it was based on this verse, this next one. The Messiah says, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. So when uh, Sunday evening, I was talking with one of our evangelism prospects whose wife had recently passed away. And in our 45-minute discussion, he quoted this verse to me. Oh, I know God binds up the brokenhearted. And then so Monday when I was looking at the text to preach on, I said, I'm going to preach on Isaiah 61 because he, he says there, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And, and I thanked him for giving me the idea for, for the sermon. And then I talked to widows in our congregation. Just what do widows and widowers feel like? And this can, the beauty of this text is it can be to all kinds of people. But I wanted to focus specifically to those who are mourning. And specifically at this time, when they probably do not really feel like celebrating Christmas. I was struggling. I was using this text this week uh, for my devotions to some of our, our shut-in members, and I was struggling to come up with a good analogy all week to describe Isaiah's prophecy here and how it really has three phases of fulfillment. Uh, how you have the first phase where Isaiah is talking to those who have been brokenhearted by the captivity that God will comfort them by restoring them to their to their home. That's the first way it gets. Then its greater fulfillment is in Christ and his work for us, and its ultimate fulfillment is in how we will be saved at the end of the world with Christ returning when all sorrow will cease. Yeah, and he binds up the brokenhearted because if you've mourned for a child, a spouse, uh, a sibling, and so forth, uh, your heart is broken. It feels like it's shattered glass. And yet Jesus comes along, and it may take a long time, and he glues the pieces back together again. And the glue he uses are his resurrection promises. The glue he uses are is a love that is both divine and one that would cause him to die for you and then also a love that is divine and also that caused him to divine to die for your christian loved one that binds up the brokenhearted and then he comes to proclaim freedom for the captives and release for those who are bound because we are captive to our sin we are bound in the dungeon of hell and yet jesus comes and releases us 
and that's just such a beautiful picture of that freedom for the captives, how we were all bound in sin. We're born as slaves to sin, as Paul talks about, um, and how we are trapped, and that Christ comes and says to us he gives freedom, that we have been freed from that burden of sin and the burden of guilt. Yeah, I was listening to an actor uh, who who's on oftentimes on the Babylon Bee, a black guy that some of his best work was uh, Californians who moved to Texas. There's like uh, three or four videos. They're they're probably the best videos, you know, the funniest videos that the Babylon Bee had has done. And he was arrested, and you know, for, not for doing anything, in my opinion. But he talked. I just finished listening to his YouTube video. Uh, where he was interviewed by another actor on the Babylon Bee, and he talked about uh, being arrested by the FBI and put in shackles, hands and feet, and yet, you know, he was in prison and then reading the Bible, and then there are other prisoners and, that were in there, and they were in there for really bad things, and this guy is not afraid of sharing the gospel with them, and they're talking about the Bible while they're outside of the courthouse ready for their arraignment and so forth. And then these other prisoners, they're asking this guy, well, can you pray with us briefly? So he's sharing the gospel, even though he's ticked. And he said that numerous times in, in the interview. He's ticked, not with those FBI agents who arrested him because they were as nice to him as could be, but just the whole idea of him being arrested for this. But the reason I bring it up is he was bound in chains, leg irons and chains on his wrists, and yet, you know, he found comfort in Christ. He just picked up the Bible and kept on reading it and then praying. He said he just prayed over and over the Lord's Prayer. That's us. We may not ever find ourselves, Lord willing, in actual physical chains and leg irons, but we can often be spiritually and emotionally bound. And yet Jesus Christ comes and he frees us. And I think you you often hear that, especially with with people we counsel that are dealing with different forms of addiction, that it's that feeling of being trapped, of being bound. And so often it's God's word that's able to break those chains, that's able to help them overcome those addictions and find peace and freedom in Christ, that they are no longer enslaved to this sin or that sin, but they are instead, as Paul describes, we are slaves to Christ, but it's a slavery of freedom. And the Messiah comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God. So two different pictures. One is the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee, that the Jews were supposed to celebrate every 50 years. But I remember Professor Brug saying he wonders if they ever ever actually celebrated the year of Jubilee. We were just talking about this in catechism the other day because uh, we were talking about Naboth's vineyard and the reason that Naboth didn't want to sell because ancestral land rights were so important uh, to the ancient Israel mindset. And someone asked, well, didn't they have that year of Jubilee where they were supposed to, like, if they did sell their land, they were supposed to get it back? And I said, yeah, but we're not sure that ever actually happened, that they never actually followed the command that got, they never kept that commandment from what we can tell. Or at least, was it under 
one of the kings that it may have happened once, right. but even then it's not completely clear how completely they followed it. Yeah, and so what was supposed to happen, the land was to revert back to the original owners, like you said, so the ancestors always had it, so that slaves were freed. And all debts were forgiven, yeah. I believe, too. Yeah, and yet, and that's why, uh, you know, I had written in the past that, you know, this is what they celebrated when I rewrote the sermon this time. What I, I used the term, we're supposed to do these things. But then I applied it is, it's often hard when we are mourning to ever think that we can rejoice. And yet, you know, the theme of this Sunday is that we are to rejoice in the Lord, that we do find joy, that we are forgiven, and that our Christian loved ones are forgiven, and that we they are in heaven, and that Lord willing, we hold on to our faith and then we'll be with them in heaven. But then he says, it's a day of vengeance. So though we on the last day will be rejoicing, those that are unbelievers, they will not be rejoicing because they're going to be afraid because God is now coming with vengeance. And it would seem odd that as Christians, we would rejoice that there are those that are going to hell. But we rejoice in the sense that God's justice is being done. We're not rejoicing in the fact that individual people are being punished, but we're rejoicing that God's holiness is being upheld. I heard this description the other day in that people will often say, how how can I believe in a God that would send people to hell? And maybe this is a way of describing it is God is not sending anyone to hell. We're all destined for hell. Uh, we're all on the precipice that we're going to fall into the pit. God is the one who is pulling us out of that pit through Christ. So uh, instead of changing it from God being the active doer of sending people to hell, now he's the active doer of saving people from hell. And I thought that was a good way of putting that. The other one I've often used, and it's not, no analogy is perfect and works completely, uh, but when I'm teaching in catechism the idea of how does forgiveness become ours and this idea that, you know, God is like a rich benefactor who writes us, who deposits a check for a million dollars in our account and says it's there. Well, if we decide to say, I don't believe you, I'm never going to go take that money. Is it right for us then to be mad at God for giving us the gift, even though we're the ones that never went and made use of that gift? Yeah. Yeah, and then this is where my sermon theme comes from, this this one line. The Messiah says, to comfort all who mourn. And then he explains it uh, more deeply. To provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a cloak of praise instead of a faint spirit. So that whole idea that we are mourning, we are grieving, and they're... I talk about in the sermon that pain, I don't think, is a, is a result of sin. In that, I think if Adam would have stepped on an acorn in the perfection of Eden with a barefoot, it would have hurt. Ah, but would Adam have stepped on an acorn in the perfection of Eden? Well, I don't know. But he could oh, have. No, let's, I want to do this. I want to get into a, a very scholastic medieval debate on these things. Well, I, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> All right. But uh, I, I think pain would have been 
is just because Jesus is perfect. He feels pain. There's my medieval argument. Jesus is perfect. He still feels pain. And yet uh, the pain that we feel from someone dying, that is definitely a product of sin uh, because we were not created to die but to live. Death is the curse of God upon Adam and Eve. For dust you are and to dust you return. The wages of sin is death. And so death is that terrible rending, that terrible tearing of the soul from the body. It tears families apart, spouses from each other. And so, yes, we are going to mourn, and yet Jesus replaces that mourning with joy. And, and that was something when I asked the widows on Wednesday after chapel, you know, how do you overcome this mourning? And they said, they, they all three ladies agreed, it's God's word and God's people. That was it. And they could have elaborated longer, but I understood what they said. They need to be in God's word. They need to be around God's people. It's not just being busy. It's not going to find someone else to date. And I even mentioned that about, you know, dating someone else. And I never thought about this. They said, well, we're all older. I don't want to find someone else fall in love with. And now they're older and I have to take care of him because his health is, is poor. Uh, and, and they all say, too, no one's going to, re, to replace whatever their spouse's name was. Uh, and so that was interesting. That, and they did, someone even said that she was jealous of her husband because now he's in glory in heaven. So it's, it's those kinds of things that uh, it takes time, like I said, to work through all of this. And yet God does eventually replace that mourning with resurrection joy. And I think we can we can assure our people, I think sometimes, and I think we've gotten much better as a church body, is sometimes I think coming out of wanting to help people, saying that, you know, as Christians, we shouldn't be sad at a funeral, that they're in heaven, we should be happy. But that's not really understanding the emotional loss that people are understanding. And I think we've done a better job of telling people, well, right, this there's joy that this person, your loved one is now in heaven, but there still is the very real pain and loss that you are feeling. And it's not wrong for you to mourn those things. I was just recently talking with someone who, who knows their life will be ending soon and was saying that they know they're going to heaven. They're certain of that, but it's still scary. And I said, well, yes, because death was never part of what God's plan was. Death is a consequence of sin. And so it's right for us to fear that consequence, and yet we we cling to the hope and assurance that we have that Christ has conquered death. That I use that the image of that picture you had explained to me of um, Jesus at the door and how you know death is like a door, and as Christians we know that when we step through that door, we're stepping right into the arms of Christ, who is yeah. right there waiting for us. Yeah, someone recently shared the story with me of a, a doctor who was, a Christian doctor who was explaining death to another patient, a Christian patient. And, you know, the Christian doctor says, well, I'm not afraid of death. And the patient said, well, why not? And he explained that on the other side of the door is his dog. And he said, you know, the dog is always happy to see me. He's always waiting there for me. And, you know, we are like that dog because the dog knows that 
the master's on the other side. Uh, we are always happy when the door opens because we know that our master, Jesus, is on the other side. Uh, and for us who are still here and then we're trying to help those who are grieving, we need to understand sometimes we're not much help because we might try and help people move along too soon. We might say, well, maybe you need to keep busy. You need to uh, find a date, uh, go on Tinder, and understand that older people have no idea what Tinder is. And, and that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> and they might, you might say to them, I'm here for you. you know, just call me if you need me. But you have to know, people will never call you. So that's nice for you to say. You have to call them and check up on them. And it's good to say, uh, I'm sorry, here's a casserole. You know, that's good too. And yet you've got to keep following up. You can't just uh, be there that first month and then be gone. Because the, the gentleman that I talked to on Sunday, you know, he was really hurting too because he said, my kids are no help. They were there when my wife died and now they're nowhere to be found. And sometimes uh, even Christian widows and widowers, they feel that way about their Christian brothers and sisters, that they were great when their spouse was dying or shortly after the death, and then they're gone. And it's not that we're purposely gone, but we're just not thinking about it. I haven't had a lot of experience counseling people through grief yet. I just know one thing that we were was emphasized when we were doing grief counseling at the seminary was, you know, the seven stages of grief have been a very popular concept. Uh, and one of the things we were cautioned with is not everyone goes through those stages of grief. They don't always come in the order that they're laid out um, popularly and that some people never progress out of one of the other stages. And to understand that people also deal with grief differently, deal with it at different paces in their life, and just to understand that we we don't need to try to fix this person. We just need to be there to help and comfort. Yeah. And we comfort by pointing them back to Christ. And then the response of those uh, who are receiving the benefits of Christ's work. Uh, now the, the speaker says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will celebrate because of my God, for he has clothed me in garments of salvation with a robe of righteousness. He covered me like a bridegroom who wears a beautiful headdress like a priest and like a bride who adorns herself with her jewelry. So, Nathan, what, what did you wear for your wedding? Because even though you're younger than me, I just picture you as being someone that would have worn the, the cummerbund and, the, and those big ruffles and so forth in your tuxedo. No, I had the vest, the tuxedo with the, with the vest. I like the vest look and a bow tie. Pretty sure we had bow ties. Okay. Because bow ties are cool. Yeah. Well, that one went right over your head. I hope somebody listening to this got the Doctor Who reference. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. See, I, I missed it. See, you're just not at that level of nerd. No, I know. I, I watched maybe two seasons of Doctor Who out of the 72 seasons that there are. Uh, but the reason I bring up the wedding clothes is a lot of times, again, if we're going to focus on the mourning and the grief, it can be bad that the, the widow doesn't even want to get out of bed. You know, feels no purpose. Why should I get out? That 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 grief is so bad it becomes anxiety. It can become depression and so forth. 
They don't want to get in the shower, don't want to get dressed, don't want to go on uh, with the day, don't want to eat. And so there in my sermon, I point people, well, remember your wedding day of the way the bride looked, look at the way the, the groom looked, but then look back to Christ. Now we are the speaker. We have received the benefit of Christ's work and ministry. And what does Christ do? He motivates us to get up. Uh, and he gives us something better than a bride's dress, better than a tuxedo. He gives us the robe of his righteousness to wear. A robe that we get to wear because uh, he wore a purple robe and he was mocked. We are receiving a crown of glory uh, and because he wore a crown of thorns. And so now... Uh, Jesus replaces all of that, that depression, that sadness with a, a joy that we can now stand in glory before our Lord. And that I really, really like the picture of the robe of righteousness, that white robe. And I really see echoes of Isaiah in John in Revelation talking about the vast host arrayed in white, of the people standing before the throne of God in white robes, those robes of righteousness, and just a beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us, that we have been clothed with his righteousness, that we have been washed with his blood. And every time I say that and talk about the white robes, I have one son who, well, actually both of them have a lot of nosebleeds, and I just think about, Washing something white with blood does not make it whiter, but that's the picture, that Jesus' blood is that precious blood of God that makes us pure and holy in the sight of our God. Yeah. Or, you know, you think of getting blood out of white clothes. I think of because I bike so much and, and I'll bike to church or whatever, and then I get bike grease on my clothes. That's Bike grease is hard to get out too. But uh, you, know, you know what's even worse is... Uh, is the uh, the mineral oil that goes in the uh, the back of um, like a differential on a car? It's got sulfur in it. I spilled that in one of my cars once, and the solution for cleaning was I cut the carpeting out of the car <laughs> because there was no getting yeah. that smell or that stain out. Yeah, yeah, and and yet Christ—that's <laughs> the way Scripture pictures our sin that we can't get it out, and yet Christ does it. Uh, anything else on the Old Testament lesson for the Sunday? No. Okay. And then just to touch on the epistle lesson, First uh, Thessalonians 5, I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to read the first two words. It says, rejoice greatly. This is sanctification. Now, again, based on that Jesus is the light of the world, the gospel lesson, based that he brings comfort to those who are mourning, now St. Paul encourages us, rejoice greatly always. This is Pastor Michael Zarling with Pastor Nathan Klusmeyer from Water of Life Lutheran Church. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. You are thirsty, my friends. Then drink deeply from the water of life. 